So, um, Margaret, how are you feeling since uh, Russia began invading Ukraine on um, Wednesday evening, our time? I mean, it's a real shit show, Sean. It's, I'm shocked. I am completely, I, I had, I had no idea this was going to happen. Completely, what's the word? <laughs> completely dumbfounded. This, this has superseded all of, all expectations I had, all suppositions, everything that I thought I understood about what was the game that, that was being played here, you know, and I use game in quotes, what, wrong. I'm wrong on every account, it seems. Yeah, I was wrong too. Um, I didn't expect this. Um, a lot of people I was reading who I highly respect were saying similarly. Um, I, uh, but my, my didn't, my lack of expectation was born out of a, a kind of analytical understanding of the situation, but also hope and fear, the hope that this wouldn't happen and the fear that it would. So, um, was wrong, unfortunately, but, uh, I'm not really, I, I don't take, I don't think people should take any pleasure from being right. <sighs> yeah, you can say that again. You know, but that that actually leads us right into today's episode, which was recorded on Wednesday, February twenty sixth, in the morning, uh, East Coast time. Uh, and so, for you listeners, some of the material might be outdated because the situation has changed dramatically. Um, as we're talking now, from media reports. Russian tanks are converging and surrounding Kyiv. Uh, so, you know, listeners should be aware of, of these caveats as they listen to this episode. Um, I think that it's still valuable uh, because it provides a lot of context um, and, and a historical, you know, understanding of what's going on. Uh, so listeners should keep that in mind as they listen. Yeah, but maybe think of it as tracking the narrative that has led up to today and not as not not as news and and this is the other thing i want to say in lieu of caveats uh i realized a long time ago on this podcast that i it, the podcast itself does not have the institutional capacity to chase headlines we just can't produce especially since until recently i was doing it alone um and i made a decision to not produce shows um, that chased headlines very closely. Believe me, this was this episode is a bit chasing headlines, but there was no way to anticipate the big headline. <laughs> so, so people people listening to this should should take that into consideration. Uh, and I hope that you still appreciate the value of the discussion between the three guests that we have today. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and today I'm joined just by Margaret Budick. 
Uh, as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. And if you find this podcast valuable, I really encourage you to take a moment, uh, reach into your wallet and become a patron. And if you would like to do that, go to the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. Or you could always go to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and click on that um, Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner and join the table of ranks. Okay, Margaret, why don't we introduce our, our guests for this discussion? Michael Kimmage is a history professor at the Catholic University of America. He specializes in the history of the Cold War in 20th century U.S. diplomatic and intellectual history and in U.S.-Russia relations since 1991. From 2014 to 2016, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's published many books and articles. His most recent book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, published by Basic Books. Lena Laruel is the director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. She's published many, many books. She's incredibly prolific. And most recently, she published Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West, published by Cornell University Press. Our third panelist today is Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor-in-chief of Russia and Global Affairs, chairman of the Presidium of the Council on Foreign and Defense Policy, the research director of the Valdai International Discussion Club, and a research professor at Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He's the editor of Russia in the Middle East, Viewpoints, Policies, Strategies, published by East View. Michael Kimmage, Marlena Lauruel, and Fyodor Lukyanov. So uh, it's been, I don't know how to put this, but a dramatic couple of months around the issue of international relations with Russia, Ukraine, and the European Union and the United States. And events really took a dramatic turn on Monday with uh, the Russian Federation formally recognizing the Donetsk and Luhansk statelets. And so I wanted to start this uh, conversation really at our present moment and ask, you know, how do you, each of you assess the situation as things stand? Uh, Fyodor, if you could start. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I think situation is very uh, serious and uh, we witnessed uh, a significant turn in Russian position a couple of days ago with this recognition of two, uh, two so-called people's republics. Uh, I think many of uh, observers and commentators and analysts here were caught by surprise, um, despite the fact that uh, preparation for this recognition started uh, a couple of weeks ago with the notion introduced in the State Duma by the Communist Party uh, to recognize them. But it was seen by most of people as, uh, as an additional mean to put pressure on um, both Kiev and uh, international partners. And uh, all official statements in this regard were, uh, oh, come on, uh, 
in the parliament. They do what they want. Uh, it's not an official position. We stick to Minsk agreements and so on. And even Putin said that, um, I think, two days before the uh, position changed. Uh, but uh, now we see that it was uh, actually the, uh, the main line. Uh, certainly not from the beginning, because I still uh, believe that uh, the initial uh, idea by the whole Russian uh, initiative uh, taken uh, in late November, early December last year uh, was to uh, really launch a significant correction of uh, European security arrangements. And as a mean, uh, for reasons which... Uh, are quite understandable. As a mean, uh, the Ukrainian issue was chosen because the Ukrainian issue is, of course, a quintessence of the whole post-Cold War development in Europe in terms of security. Uh, and it uh, looked uh, pretty logical that the implementation of Minsk agreements, which would uh, transform, U in case of real implementation, would transform Ukraine significantly into um, a much more federal or even confederal state uh, with a lot of uh, space for maneuvering for both uh, pro-Russian and pro-Western forces. So it was seen as a quite a, a natural and a reasonable way uh, to try to address the big issue about NATO enlargement and non-enlargement. Uh, probably it went wrong because uh, it didn't happen. And then another scenario was launched. Uh, Marlena, what is your assessment of, of how things look? Yeah, I agree with Fyodor. I think it's really, we see now Russia kind of making a turn to the Minsk II agreement that it wanted to preserve so for so long as a leverage over Ukraine, meaning that the Kremlin now consider it has exhausted the kind of Minsk type of uh, leverage over uh, Ukraine and the West and has to move to something that indeed they didn't want it a few days ago, even before at the Duma, and then they at the last minute changed their mind. And the way it was staged in a kind of very impressive and, and, and humiliating way for, for several figures like Sergei Narishkin, not knowing anymore if he had to recognize the independence of the two secessionist republic or their annexation to Russia, which means that probably they were discussing both scenarios and then decided to move for the the, the lowest one, meaning that there are still room for kind of escalating. The the only uh, the, the the only point I would also mention is that there have been these ambiguities about knowing if they are recognizing the two entities in their today's borders, how they are controlled by the secessionist authorities, or recognizing the two uh, oblast region, and that is of course also kind of keeping a door open for some escalation, depending on how they want to interpret the borders of the two entities. So we can see that they have been moving at the last minute toward the smallest level of escalation they could to kind of keep some room of maneuver, but also to avoid uh, uh, probably uh, uh, an escalation that I don't think they really want. Michael, well, let me just add. Uh four points to the excellent points already made to sketch as precisely as I can the nature of the impasse that we're at at the present moment. Uh, when I look at the, the Russian side, it does seem like, although the a number of radical steps have been taken in the last 48 hours, uh, the core Russian goals in the situation have not been 
uh, achieved um, and could only be achieved, I think, by, you know, sort of future developments or perhaps uh, an escalation from uh, from the Russian side. Certainly, Ukraine is no closer to neutrality today than it was uh, a week ago. In some respects, I think it's further from that. So that's one aspect of the impasse. And as Marlene already said, the diplomatic track um, that's been so frenetic in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, uh, and there was talk of a summit meeting between Presidents Putin and Biden and a ministerial meeting between Secretary Blinken and, and Foreign Minister Lavrov, that's all over with. Uh, and I can't imagine that that kind of diplomacy is going to return for uh, for quite a long time. So there, too, you see a impasse. Thirdly, you see a hardening uh, of the Western position in response to Putin's speech and to the recognition of the DNR uh, and LNR. And this is obviously the sanctions package that's been put together by the U.S. Uh, and a variety of, uh, of allies. Uh, and I would imagine that the military aid to Ukraine that you've seen in the last couple of months is going to increase. Uh, so there, too, you see a kind of hardening of the uh, a position, and then finally, Ukraine itself. Um, although I don't think anybody in the Ukrainian government would say this, has in a in a, in a sense been liberated um, by the recognition of the DNR, uh, LNR, uh, and is likely, unless something changes, to be far less amenable to to compromise than it hasn't been amenable to compromise uh, for 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 many months, if not for uh, for years. So. You know, the situation that we've arrived at is a rather profound impasse from all sides. Yeah, that's that's what it, it, it seems, you know, one of the things, to, what you said, Michael, in terms of like, in, you know, Ukraine is now seems to be kind of free to leave Minsk. Um, and and they, they, you know, some of the things I've read is that there is, you know, some sort of satisfaction in the fact that Russia made this move and pulled out of, of Minsk itself. Um, so... I'm curious as to as to what you think, what kind of pressure besides, you know, military pressure can Russia exert on Ukraine at this point with the recognition of these two republics? I think that there are only two forms of, of pressure in the sort of implicit to, um, implicit to your question. I mean, you can certainly imagine uh, use of d a direct military force following from an accident, perhaps, uh, or following from designs that have been laid. Uh, uh, already, uh, but there's also you know, it's a comparable but not identical tool, the threat of force. Uh, and of course, that's been there um, in the last couple of months. Over the course of the last year, you've seen the threat of force as something that's uh, that's there that has an effect on the Ukrainian economy. I'm sure it has a psychological effect on Ukrainian leadership uh, and the people of Ukraine. Uh, and you know, one of those two tools could uh, you know certainly change the dynamic there. But uh, I don't see at the moment, many non-coercive tools that are available to Moscow. Yeah, I agree with Michael, and I think it's revealing of the, the disappointment of, of Moscow toward Belensky. I think that really at the beginning, they were hoping they would be able to kind of <laughs> find a way to, to have Zelensky implementing one way or another the Minsk agreements, and then they realized that that was not going in that direction and that all the other option that they could have on, on the table were slowly uh, going away. And so coercion remained at different levels, but coercion remained the, the only option. I mean, Russian, any form of kind of soft power or influence is, is really pretty low now. So coercion seems to be the, 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 the last resort on one way or another. And Fiora, how, how is this, how is the recognition of, of the Donbass Republic's 
resonating amongst you and your colleagues and trying to make a sense of Russia's foreign policy uh, options? You know that, as, as, I, as I mentioned, that was rather surprising to to, to, to many people who are trying to rationalize uh, this uh, uh, development since the beginning. Uh, of course, uh, I, I agree very much uh, that uh, uh, the line is very thin that the Russian leadership and Putin uh, personally uh, is trying to increase pressure. Uh, without uh, big losses based on that. I think now we are at the very, very fragile uh, stage when we see that sanctions uh, introduced and discussed in practical terms, both in the United States, in Europe, but especially in the United States, those sanctions are less and less symbolic. They are more and more uh, substantial. And uh, of course, the key, the crown in the uh, uh, the, the jewel in the crown, uh, which is called uh, uh, Nord Stream Two, is very much, uh, so to say, challenged now. Uh, so uh, you asked about uh, the pressure which uh, uh, should or can can be done on on Ukraine. Uh, I think, first of all, that the pressure is not necessarily on Ukraine only. Of course, this. Uh, rise of psychological uh, tension uh, is um, uh, uh, not just for not only for Zelensky or for Ukrainian establishment that's uh, uh, rather a universal mean to address uh, the West uh, I guess that uh, the the main uh, area of pressure the main direction will be of course military but uh, despite the fact that I, I was wrong on many, <laughs> many issues before, and now I, I hesitate to, to say something, but I still believe that a real uh, full-scale war landmark operation, which, was, uh, which has been envisaged by American intelligence and uh, almost everybody in the West since uh, several weeks, it's absolutely not Vladimir Putin's style. He's, he's very much di- different person. He's not a big warrior. He's not a, a person who uh, would love to launch war. And actually, he is not about human losses. So I rather would expect uh, something like uh, sophisticated uh, steps to increase psychological tension, to demonstrate capacities. I don't know any capacities, including uh, cyber, whatever. And uh, to to be on the brink uh, to the re- to, to 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 something which can be clearly called invasion. That's uh, something like this. And what about the West response, the collective West response? Because um, you know Biden clearly stated yesterday that uh, NATO troops are not going to engage Russia directly to defend Ukraine. Of course, you have the unveiling of incremental escalating sanctions. What about the, the, the West's ability to influence the situation? If I may, just, just also very, very briefly. Uh, you know, I think what happened until now and probably will happen uh, in the uh, very uh, foreseeable future, that makes the whole picture of what uh, we have in Europe much more clear, uh, clear and much uh, more, so to say, linear and transparent. What Biden said many times, and he keep, keeps that, keeps repeating that, 
United States and ally, uh, United States will defend allies. United States will not defend anybody else. And I think it's a very important uh, clarification because uh, before that, for several years, if not decades, we lived in a very strange environment when it was like, uh, yes, this is uh, Article 5 and, and NATO is a military political alliance to defend uh, uh, member states. But at the same time, it's not exactly the military political alliance because it's about prosper uh, prosperity, democracy, safety for people and so on. And it's not just for allies. It's, and I think that that played extremely bad role because when NATO started to to diffuse the mission and the obligation that led to a lot of confusions on the side of Russia and uh, even on, uh, especially on the side of those countries which is part membership. Now it's much, uh, it's very much clarified, which is, if if I may say in this terrible situation, a positive thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting, interesting spin. <laughs> Marlena, uh, uh, Michael, what is your uh, view of the the response coming out of the West and and its ability to, you know, put pressure and and change the situation? Well, I agree. It has been makes things clearer in Europe. I think the the um, the tensions we could. Uh, notice in the between the US and and the European narratives a few weeks ago seems to are kind of uh, vanishing now and everybody seems to be on the same line. I mean Germany evolution being probably the the, the most visible. The, the way France also has been kind of trying to intervene and then seems now to be like largely part of the general Western uh, consensus. It's make things clearer for Europe. I, I found that sad because it also means that we are losing all the nuances that Europe wanted to bring to the to the, the discussion, and meaning that it's the most uh, radical vision of the, the the tension that is the the American one that are kind of uh, uh, winning. And I think also, yeah, indeed, it played a bit. I mean, the fact that the West has been sending mixed signals has really contributed a lot to the situation where we are now on the way that it was very difficult for Russia to interpret these mixed signals, but also for other countries. And of course, Ukraine, it's also make things clearer for Ukraine and for Zelensky to be able to kind of talk to its own population and try to kind of say things in a, in a clearer way now where we know uh, exactly what would be the, the US position in terms of who is defendable and who is not. And and Marlene, what about the resonance of this all of this in France? I mean, Macron for you know a couple of weeks was really doing a lot of heavy diplomatic lifting. Yeah, France, you know, had this uh, tradition of of uh, uh, trying to have its own voice. Macron has always had the feeling that he has a way to talk to Putin in a kind of gaullist uh, manner that you know between between big nation or former big nation former empire, we have a way to talk to each other. And I think he was really hoping to to try to kind of decrease the, the, the tension and, and feeling that the U.S. were kind of becoming too, too uh, uh, alarmist. But at the end, of course, it's, I think it has been a disappointment for, for the, the French foreign policy that they were not able to kind of play a bigger role and try to decrease tensions. But that was probably outside of the... <laughs> The the, the 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 realms of, of uh, uh, possible things. Let me make uh, three points about the Biden administration. Uh, one uh, one word of praise, two more critical. 
comments. The, the word of praise, I think, would be on, on the caliber of the the diplomatic activities. They've worked well uh, with allies and get people mostly on message and seem to have done a good job of coordination with the uh, with the sanctions. So that's, you know, um, to their credit in terms of uh, shoring up their position and, and, and getting themselves ready for whatever the future will bring. Uh, a second point, um, since we're all, Marlene and Fyodor and I at the moment talking about ambiguity or strategic ambiguity, uh, is that they failed at deterrence. Um, uh, you know, a wider war hasn't come. Uh, but uh, still, they haven't uh, prevented the existing escalation. Uh, and there's been a lot of mixed messaging about that from Biden. On the one hand, that's not really their game or not really their obligation. On the other hand, the times they sound like they were speaking about their intelligence leaking uh, as, as a way of deterring Russia. And it doesn't seem to have had uh, that much of an effect. And the sanctions, whatever their long-term role will be, have not had uh, a deterrent effect. At least one can't uh, visibly... Uh, see that, and I think that that does have implications for uh, American security guarantees and commitments uh, in Europe writ large, sort of beyond NATO. Uh, it's it's smaller, uh, I think, than it seemed uh, even uh, even six months ago, and I don't think that that's great for the Biden administration. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, and you know, I think Fyodor made this point uh, in somewhat different terms by demonstrating that the commitment to Ukraine is really quite modest. Uh, it goes against a lot of the rhetoric of American policy, um, you know, going back to, to 2014, where Ukraine was a partner, not an ally, but a partner. Uh, there were lots of military commitments. Ukraine is the third biggest recipient of American uh, of American aid. And a lot of American figures, from Secretary Austin to the others, spoke as a country to which the U.S. had a kind of serious commitment. And when push comes to shove, you see that that commitment is really pretty modest. Zelensky goes to the Munich Security Conference and comes back to Ukraine uh, empty-handed. That, I think, is not terrific uh, for American diplomacy or for American foreign policy making indicates a certain kind of hollowness in the policies. Yeah, I, I was, you know, I just thought of this when you were speaking, and that is, you know, given the fact that the United States has taken its ability to use coercion in terms of military action against Russia, I mean, God forbid, I mean, the stakes are too high for that. But nonetheless, does that limit the amount of deterrence the United States can actually carry out? I would say absolutely. I think that if, if Western policymakers are candid at the moment, what they have to say is that they have no deterrent options. Uh, the deterrent option that they would have, in theory, would provide air power uh, and a major troop commitment to Ukraine. Biden has been adamant and clear about not wanting to do that. I don't think there might be some exceptions to that, perhaps in the Baltic states or Poland, but I don't think European leaders want to go down that road uh, either. So if you don't have a genuine deterrent tool, you have to accept what you do have, which are these long-term tools of economic statecraft. But um, I can't imagine that those would be a surprise to Putin uh, or that they would change his mind in terms of the big decisions he has to make. Let, let's step back and kind of look at how we got to this point. And, and first, in dealing with some of the long-term uh, issues that are on the table here. And it seems to me that a lot of how you see what are the long-term issues has to do with what kind of story you're telling. When do you start that story? Do you start the story in 1991 or 1989? Or do you start it in 2007 or 2008 or 2014? You get the picture. Um, Considering that, you know, how would you describe the long-term issues that are, are driving the situation? Why don't we start with you, Marlena? 
Yeah, I, I would, for me, that's really beginning at the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, in fact, more exactly, the last years of the, the Soviet Union. So for me, it's really about, the, the storylines is really about misunderstanding on who won, who lost the Cold War, did Russia lost or did Russia itself participated in changing the European landscape by accepting to, to withdraw from, from East Germany first and then from the rest of the Central uh, uh, Europe. It's about who decide of the European security architecture. So for me, it's misunderstanding that really began 30 years ago. And I think it's important to go back to that time. Otherwise, we miss the point that the problem is not only Putin. If we make things beginning later, then it looks like Putin is a problem. And then you have all this then after a narrative that, OK, the day Putin will not be there, things will be easier. And I think we tend to forget that already in the 90s, even under Yeltsin administration, liberal, pro-Western, whatever, they were pretty clear about things they are not ready to accept in what they considered or can still consider they are near abroad. So I think they are. They have been really like thirty years of misunderstanding on both sides about how do we decide a European security ar- architecture and what is Russia's status in Europe and which uh, uh, level of uh, involvement Russia is given in kind of shaping the, the the continent. So for me, it's really about like failing to understand that neither side can defeat the other and that if we have to live together, then we have to build an architecture that would work for everybody. Yeah, for me, I, I agree with what Marlene said, uh, but I think uh, there is uh, even uh, more precise uh, uh, point. When it started, uh, that was early uh, 1990, or rather very late uh, 1989, when uh, Soviet Union and Gorbachev uh, agreed uh, to uh, unify Germany's uh, Germany's membership in NATO. And uh, the whole process started there, because that was ba- basically uh, the, um, the, 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 the idea uh, that European security is equal to NATO. Of course, it was not written down in, in, in uh, those documents and not in the Paris uh, Charter for, for New Europe. But in fact, it was about this, that the, after uh, the way how the Cold War ended, it was uh, uh, actually clear that the only choice uh, countries in Europe could make was NATO, and NATO based on decision about Germany, was seen as the only mean to guarantee real security for countries and for the whole continent. And since that, it started to, uh, to automatically expand uh, this sphere, this area of uh, uh, peace and security, despite the fact that uh, uh, neither Soviet Union, uh, the short period when it still existed, nor Russia after that, were very much enthusiastic about, but uh, the first stage uh, uh, Moscow accepted. Then very, very soon it started to try to object, and uh, Marlene is absolutely right. If, if we look at uh, articles uh, uh, written in, uh, say, 94, 95, 96 by uh, American and European uh, scholars about the mood in Moscow, uh, all of them emphasize that that Russians are very much concerned 
some people believed paranoid about NATO enlargement, and I don't remember who uh, some of uh, very uh, respected people uh, in our field uh, wrote uh, 1996 that you know you can you imagine uh, when you speak to people in Moscow, those are almost everybody is saying that uh, Ukraine uh, sooner or later will be put on the list of NATO members. How crazy they are, those people. And that, that's very funny because, oh, okay, it's not funny because we, <laughs> this is the, 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 uh, the, the, those are roots to the situation today. But uh, I, I agree that uh, the, the story which we uh, witness now started very, very long ago. Uh, Michael, how about you? Because sometimes it, it seems in some of the rhetoric that I hear, you know, and particularly in the American side, it's the situation is seen as a, at least publicly, as a Putin problem rather than a Russia problem. So how would you tell this story of how we got to here? Well, my, my mood at the moment is, is one of regret. And so I'll just speak from that mood and telling the story as I see it. I think in literary terms, the story that's before our eyes at the moment is a tragedy. Um, this is a crisis that was to a degree predestined by developments in the 1990s, as Marlene and, and Fyodor have both indicated, but um, predestined and not inevitable at the same time. And that's sort of what makes it a, a Greek tragedy, I would say. I interpret the year 2014, especially February of 2014, as driven by accident. Uh, the flight of Yanukovych was an accident of, of politics, and I think it led to intersecting misreadings from the United States uh, and from Russia of the situation uh, in Ukraine. And, you know, a lot of the escalation that occurred in that year follows from uh, from those uh, misreadings. I don't know if there was an easy way to negotiate or to manage that crisis, but it certainly didn't uh, happen. And then another layer of the story, you know, I'll be sort of a bit more critical of the Western side here, since there's no shortage of criticism of Putin at the moment. And, you know, that's, you know, sort of all ringing in our ears. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, uh, that's important as well. But uh, on the Western side, the terrible laziness after 2015, I really here have the Europeans in mind. France and Germany were supposed to do something about Minsk. They were supposed to bring it across the finish line. And what happens is it doesn't resolve anything Minsk. It doesn't lead to any, um, you know, sort of cessation of hostilities. And I get the impression that France and Germany just kind of forget about it. They wanted it to go away uh, and not to uh, make real progress there. And then, you know, I look back now, and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I think the first six months of the Biden administration are a great wasted opportunity uh, with Russia. You had a perfectly civil and polite meeting between Presidents Biden and Putin in June of 2021 uh, in Geneva, but not much was really accomplished there. There should have been a push. Every new administration is a new beginning, uh, and there should have been a push there. I think the U.S. should have exerted now and then more pressure uh, on uh, on Ukraine uh, and on issues related to NATO. You know, this is a Pandora's box of interpretations and historical problems, but there should have been more creativity and more flexibility. So we're going to end up with a situation in which Ukraine's membership in NATO is going to be practically impossible. And if we think back in time, we could have accepted that diplomatically and perhaps gotten a certain amount of, uh, of progress from that. So, uh, you know, I'm not that interested in blame at the moment, and that's not the heart and soul of your question, but I do have enormous regret about these missed opportunities, 
misunderstandings, misreadings, and in a sense, you know, here we are uh, after many years of 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 of, of these negative developments. Well, well, Michael just opened up the the issue of some of the short term, uh, you know, events that have led us to this critical moment, and and one of the things that's been kind of bouncing off and on in my head is is why did the Russian side begin to escalate this on a military level, you know, in the last several months. Uh, why now, Fyodor? I think uh, two uh, well-known question, Russian questions, uh, what to do and uh, who, who is to blame, well-known from history. We can now add this why now. And, and who's, who beats who? Don't forget that one. <laughs> yeah, because I hear it all the time. You know, I, I think I think that we might speculate. Of course, uh, there are several uh, reasons, some of objective character, some some less objective. Uh, I think that the uh, militarization of Ukraine uh, was not that important as Russian side now tries to present, but it was a factor because we saw uh, during uh, last year or year and a half. Uh, gradual increase of uh, military cooperation between Ukraine and uh, different NATO countries, uh, Britain, U.S., and uh, uh, Turkey, for example, which was, I think, quite quite an important uh, nuance. Uh, so Russian uh, military, uh, they follow they're very closely. They don't want uh, to... Uh, to get a situation when uh, Ukrainian technical capacity will be significantly improved. Uh, secondly, I think uh, that uh, uh, it was some kind of uh, conclusion, wrong or right, we will see, but conclusion on the side of Russian leadership that uh, President Biden is much less about Eastern Europe and Ukraine than, than, than he says publicly. And on the one hand, Putin had a conversation with him, uh, as uh, uh, Michael mentioned in Geneva. It was a pretty, pretty okay meeting. Uh, and as, as I heard from Russian delegation, uh, it was pretty substantial, and they were really uh, relatively positive to each other. So probably Putin is known for having, uh, uh, for relying on his intuition about people very much. So. And another thing which I, th- I, I, I guess is underestimated in the West is that uh, Russian uh, conclusion uh, after what happened recently, I mean Afghanistan and uh, uh, this uh, AUKUS uh, grouping which was created in, uh, in September, uh, proclaimed in se- September, that was followed very closely here. Afghanistan, not in the sense as it is, is being discussed in America, that the uh, United States demonstrated weakness and so on. Not at all. I think it was not seen as a weakness of the United States. Okay, a bad preparedness, but not weakness. What was important that the United States and Biden decided to do it because he believed it was, needed, it was necessary to do. Whatever, whatever negative sides it, it, it would bring and whatever allies would think. And that, that was emphasized So uh, here and noticed here as a sign that NATO probably is not as important to him as, as uh, uh, is, uh, it is officially stated. Same with AUKUS. AUKUS suddenly demonstrated that European allies were not informed, not consulted. They were just put uh, in the position. Now, now we have this. And I think it, it might be uh, an, an additional 
additional impetus to believe that Biden would be more flexible in discussing the future of NATO. Marlena, do you have anything to add in terms of short-term issues, causes? No, I think the the few that are really summarized very well the the, the main ones, and I think the this vision in Russia that uh, NATO was trying to kind of bypass formal membership in developing more kind of bilateral military assistance with Ukraine was an important one. Also, I think as I was saying, uh, uh, Russia kind of lost hopes on on Zelensky. And then, of course, Biden's uh, um, uh, elements, uh, Fyodor mentioned that. I would also add, so Germany changed chancellor, chancellor, so it was kind of unclear, uh, 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 or maybe, sorry, should say differently. It was clear from the Russian side that there would be a kind of vacuum of, you know, European leadership for, for a few months. Nord Stream 2 was on its way. Macron was busy getting reelected, so there was this idea probably that it was a, a moment where Russia was suddenly strong enough to try to 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 get things uh, on its side. Yeah, my, Michael, it does seem. I mean, based on Melania and Fyodor's comments, that it it seems that from the Russian side, at least, there seemed to be a potential opening to deal with some of these issues. Um, what, what is your take on it? Yes, I'm not working off of good evidence here, but I'll just offer you something hypothetical. I think one way of looking at Biden, when you read the campaign speeches and sort of look at his strategic documents, going back to what Fyodor said about the importance of China for the Biden administration, is that they were going to come in with that as a top priority. Resources being finite, if China is a top priority, there are certain things that have to be done uh, in, in, in Europe. And so you can imagine a scenario in which Biden would sort of come in uh, and exert pressure on Zelensky to implement Minsk on, on Russian terms. Uh, and, you know, that's politically very difficult for Zelensky. Maybe not impossible, but difficult. But if the U.S. would sort of push in that direction, he might not have too much uh, of an alternative. And then you could imagine, had that been the sort of uh, the policy of the Biden administration in the first six months, there could have been a very different meeting in Geneva. It was polite for sure, constructive to get the strategic stability out of it. But I think that Putin didn't get as much as he was hoping for uh, in that meeting. And sort of that's the hypothetical scenario. I think what you get in reality is that Biden comes into office January 2021. And I think Zelensky uh, felt very emboldened by that. You know, He had enormous difficulties with Trump, as we all know. Trump got impeached for some of those uh, some of those difficulties. Uh, and finally, you have an Atlanticist, you have an old cult warrior uh, in Biden. And I think Zelensky felt like this was the time to push for NATO membership, not to make any sort of concessions and compromises vis-a-vis uh, the Donbass. Uh, and, you know, Uncle Sam was uh, was on his side. So instead of getting this kind of realist uh, recalibration that Putin may have been hoping for, you almost get the opposite of that. Uh, you get a kind of... Uh, uh, greater degree from a Russian point of view, a greater degree of intransigence, uh, and consequently a sort of new set of actions uh, from, from Russia's side. So why do I listen to the podcast? Because I like to hear people care and talk earnestly about the things that they care about. And also have a discussion where it feels like there's an open space to say what it is that they're actually trying to say without the politics in the background. And I wanted to be a part of that discussion because it's the only place where you can hear a good conversation about 
a wide variety of subjects that no one else seems to be talking about or caring about. But like every single time I turn on the podcast to listen, someone convinces me to care about something that I didn't even know was a problem in the first place or was, a, was even a conversation in the first place. If you care like I do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or srbpodcast.org. This, this is actually, um, you just opened up another to my next question, and that is, you know, we, we, and we've been talking this way so far in our conversation, but it's a lot of the, the rhetoric and analysis is about the, the great powers, right? The collective West versus Russia, but there are actors on the ground. And, and I've been really curious as to, and you, you already started pointing to this, Michael, uh, about the role of Ukraine. And, and I'm also curious as to what, is, what role do the separatists play in the Donbass in, in, you know, creating the conditions of this situation? You want to continue, Michael? I don't have too much to offer on, on, on the separatists. I'm not uh, all that versed uh, in it. I would just make what I think is sort of the obvious point, but an important one for Zelensky, just how constrained he is politically. He campaigns as a peace candidate. He has a long career uh, in Russia. He's a good Russian speaker. I think that's really his his sort of native uh, native language. Uh, you know, he's of Jewish background. He's not a Ukrainian nationalist. Uh, and I think a lot of people who voted for him wanted him to bring peace to Ukraine. And uh, I think if he would be left to his own devices, that might be exactly what he would do. But there are these constraints. And uh, I think that there's, it's not so much to me, I think, following from the separatists, but more from people on the right and sort of nationalist positions in Ukrainian politics who not only disagree with Zelensky, but I think at times have threatened violence if he would go too far uh, toward toward Russia. So he's up against a wall or a lot of different walls uh, in, in in domestic Ukrainian politics. And I think he's you know, gradually fallen victim to that uh, that system of constraint. Yeah, I think we indeed tend to forget them. We tend to forget about European countries and all the divisions that are existing inside Europe, right? And that's, of course, a key issue for that explains Europe's difficulties in having its own voice, that it's very much divided around strategic issues and around memory issues. And that's probably one of the big failure of the EU to not have been able to build a kind of more or less unified consensual uh, narrative. I indeed also think Ukraine has its own dynamic. I mean, Zelensky was also losing support in the pools. I think also he interpreted um, um, the Navalny story in a way that gives him this idea that, okay, EU and US are becoming more and more criti- critical toward the Kremlin. Russia seems to be really kind of moving toward more authoritarianism. So it's the right time of not <laughs> trying to implement means and asking for more uh, Western support. So I think there was also this reading that. There was already domestic context in Russia that was pushing the EU and, and the US to be more and more critical toward, toward Russia. In, for the separatist entities, I think they are really less powerful and less autonomous than they were, of course, eight years ago. They still have some agency, but I would think it's a very minimal one. I think their own agency is to be able to spoil <laughs> the situation and create crisis on the ground that can then escalate. I mean, they can probably play a role in staging 
attacks. They have been mobilizing their men. They can be maybe, you know, like being the one at the origin of, of sending their civilian population to, to Rostov. But I don't think they have the autonomy that the kind of strategic autonomy that they had in 2014 and, and, and 15. So now they are really a, a, a smaller actor. And if I may just add an actor that has no agency, but that we shouldn't be for, for, forgetting is the Russian public opinion, which, which really don't want the war with Ukraine, which don't want more tension with the West. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind in terms of uh, US policy toward Russia, but also toward Russians. And that is, unfortunately, they are the one kind of uh, losing on all sides. Yeah, I think, uh, connecting to, to the last point uh, by Marlene, I think that Russian public opinion matters. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not that sure that Russian public opinion will, at least at this point, will play uh, a role to, 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 uh, to de-escalate, so the... Uh, fresh uh, polls uh, about this decision to recognize uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, shows that uh, as I think 76% support this. Of course, it's not it's not about war. It's rather about peace because it is presented in, in Russian media as a huge peacekeeping effort. Uh, as for uh, war, I think CNN published today uh, a poll, a poll uh, uh, done in, in, in Russia uh, on, on behalf of CNN, uh, and 50%, half of Russians, believe that Russia should use force in order to prevent Ukraine to join NATO. Whether it's representative or not, we don't know. But of course, the atmosphere vis-a-vis -vis Western threat, not Ukrainian threat, but Western threat through Ukraine is pretty pretty strong. But I think uh, Marlene is right that uh, if it, uh, God forbid, will come to the full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine, Russians and Ukrainians, I cannot imagine a huge uh, enthusiasm. And so far, at least, there is uh, absolutely not the atmosphere we remember from 2014, when Crimea was first so to say saved and then uh, uh, incorporated into Russia. Uh, so it seems that current public opinion is different. Uh, it does not mean that it will be, it will oppose, but uh, I don't believe it can um, can produce a huge enthusiasm. And about uh, local players, I think we should not forget. I, I agree that uh, the local leaders in uh, in Donbas they now play a rather former role, so they are pretty under strict uh, control from. Uh, from Moscow, but uh, we should not forget about people living there. And uh, as I understand, people there, of course, many of them are very much disappointed uh, what hap happened during those eight years, but they rather disappointment in the fact that Russia did not uh, took, uh, take uh, the whole territory. And in this regard, what I hear now from those whom I know related to this region or from this region that's very positive um, perception of what happened. So, uh, and uh, Zelensky, yes, I agree that he he was perceived extremely positively at the beginning of uh, of uh, his term. And I can even tell you that, as a frequent contributor to Russian state media, I 
was asked just when he was elected, I wrote a, a rather ironic piece, uh, not even mentioning him, but a piece about what kind of people come now to the big politics, ironic about this kind of uh, actors and so that. And I was asked not to publish there because they, they, <laughs> they didn't want to, so to say, humiliate this nice guy. But uh, something happened afterwards, and unfortunately, as uh, probably you remember, Marlene certainly uh, remembers the interview by uh, initial chief of staff of Zelensky, Mr. Bogdan. He gave a huge interview last year, uh, or, or the year, uh, year and a half ago, when he was uh, removed from administration. And uh, he said that uh, with Russians, initially it came very well and it started very well. But then we cheated them and they, they, were, they became angry. And unfortunately, that's part of uh, Ukrainian political culture as well. It seems that now in the last, you know, 48 hours or so, we're seeing, uh, you know, a response to Russia's move to recognize the, the breakaway republics. Um, everyone is giving their response. Uh, the the diplomatic plans that were supposed to happen this week between Blinken and Lavrov on the one hand and Biden and Putin on the other are off the table. So how does, you know, is, is diplomacy dead for the time being? Do you see any possibility of it being revived in the near future, Michael? Well, I would distinguish between two kinds of diplomacy. There's the, the diplomacy that aims to, to solve problems. Uh, and to create durable structures for conflict management and, you know, sort of uh, uh, the creation of conditions of peace uh, and, um, and and good relations. Uh, maybe it was hard to believe in that diplomacy working in the last couple of months, but at least if you wanted to, uh, and I fell into this category, you could believe that there was still hope for that kind of uh, diplomacy. I don't see any prospects for that uh, in the short to medium term, unless there's you know, a very unexpected shift uh, on one side uh, or the other. Uh, and I think when you see the kind of political capital that President Emmanuel Macron spent coming to Moscow and the kind of results that he, he got, I just can't imagine, you know, President Biden or Chancellor Scholz or any sort of comparable leader doing something like that. Uh, and I also think the trust, which is a crucial ingredient of diplomacy, the trust is, is, is just gone. Uh, and it may come back at some point, but uh, it's not there now. But there's another kind of diplomacy, which is the diplomacy of crisis management. It's the kind of diplomacy that the U.S. and Russia have been conducting in Syria since 2015. It's deconfliction. Uh, it's a degree of communication, even when there are differences of vision and, and, and hostilities. To, to my mind, that's just become a lot more important. I mean, it doesn't cease to be true that the United States and Russia are the world's two major nuclear powers, they both have a responsibility to communicate, uh, uh, not to go over the uh, the precipice, not to go over the abyss. You know, I think that Presidents Biden and Putin are very aware of that uh, and will take steps uh, in the future not to let things get completely out of control. But that's what I would hope for from diplomacy and what I would uh, expect and, and nothing more. Marlena, the, we've you know, it's been mentioned so far in our discussion about the, the the difference of opinion within Europe as to how to deal with Russia. We saw a lot of activity on the part of Germany and France. Um, but it seems that, you know, with Russia's actions in the Donbass, it's kind of consolidated, 
Europe, the European position as a whole. Do you see the European leaders, you know, taking a step to try to reignite diplomacy? I think it would be um, exactly as, as Michael said, that diplomacy to create kind of durable solution. I don't think anyone wants to spend more energy on that because it seems to be impossible for the moment. Diplomacy to avoid war, yes, I think I think European leaders will continue to try to be active on that, both French, France and, and, and Germany. So I think that would be that kind of aspect of diplomacy. I think that would still be working. And Fyodor, what about from the Russian side? Uh, I think it was an interesting uh, phrase uh, today from uh, some of German officials. Uh, there are rumors that uh, either Schroeder or uh, Merkel are engaged in secret uh, diplomacy, uh, shuttle diplomacy now, uh, which sounds actually logical, especially Schroeder with his connections. And the uh, I think it was foreign ministry said that uh, we don't comment on our contacts with Russians. There are plenty of them. So what does it mean? I don't know. On the Russian side, I think for now, uh, Putin's uh, posturing is that uh, we don't need uh, your services anymore. But I don't believe it's the final final stage. We are now in the, in the phase of uh, another escalation dangerous stage, uh, no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, uh, again, coming back to what, what I said earlier, I cannot imagine this particular person who we know for more than 20 years now, and we understand more or less how his mind works, despite the fact that everybody says that he's unpredictable, he's not. <laughs> he's very, actually a very clear, clear person. I, I still cannot imagine a full-scale war as a mean which uh, uh, Russia under Putin's uh, leadership would use against Ukraine. Maybe I'm wrong and hopefully not, but if not, then it will be a combination of different means, including uh, uh, to engage in diplomacy with Europeans and Americans as well, uh, again. Marlene, you've, you've spent a lot of time in the last several years looking at uh, Russian nationalism, um, you know, Russian memory, uh, historical memory. And, you know, I, like a lot of people, were struck by Putin's speech uh, on Monday. Um, you know, his 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 treatment of, of Russian history and the role of Ukraine in that history, um, the Soviet Union, uh, in, in the laundry list of grievances that he sells for a long time. You know, what did you what did you make of this speech from from, you know, other things you've been looking at in terms of memory and nationalism, etc.? Yeah, Putin's speech was really a kind of complex combination of different ideological arguments that were put uh, forward. And I see three kind of major storylines. The the strategic one, which I think is the only one that is really uh, uh, genuine and legitimate on many aspects. And then two other lines that I think are showing the kind of the, the, the level of uh, yeah uh, nation building issues and ideologization of the the strategic uh, uh, core elements so one narrative was the genocide 
of the Russian people narrative, which of course uh, doesn't make a, a sense, but is has to be understood is this kind of general context of, you know, demographic fear in Russia, uh, um, uh, this kind of Russian world uh, notion. And that is probably in telling us that people around Putin, those who write the, the speeches or this kind of collective Putin, consider it's a relevant argument they want to make forward. I don't know if they really think that the population is believing that kind of argument or if that only resonates with some small ethno-nationalist conservative circle that's that was for me it's it's really a very bad argument because it just it just doesn't make make sense so it's it's kind of delegitimizing the strategic arguments of the of the discourse and the third line was the one you just described the kind of historical lines about almost presenting Ukraine as a purely kind of creation by the Bolsheviks done to kind of destroy the Russian nation, that Ukraine is not really a nation or a state, that it was always part of Russia. And and that is indeed part of also another ideological line that has been rising these last years about kind of becoming more and more critical toward the the Soviet Union, especially toward the the Bolsheviks' uh, uh, legacy. And that is part of this kind of memory battle between the the red and the whites, if we can say, of the of uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, elites. And here also, I think it's interesting just to have that in mind because the Western media were so much about like a, a, a Putin as a kind of nostalgic of the Soviet Union, uh, kind of wanted to recreate or being a kind of neo-Stalinist, whatever. I mean, when you read, I mean, it's really a very anti-Soviet narrative. It's really like everything. So Ukraine was created by Lenin, by Stalin, by Khrushchev, and everything of, of that is fake. Indeed, in fact, it should be what it was before the revolution that is part of the Russian empire. So it's a very anti-Soviet and, and kind of a, a white or, or imperial narrative that he also, I think, is destroying the, the strategic arguments. But unfortunately, it's now seems to be really part of the narrative. So we have these three lines, the kind of the strategic, the historical, and the ethno-nationalist. And I think the, the last two are just kind of uh, 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 not going in the right direction in terms of Russia trying to make rational arguments for its its position. Uh, Fyodor, I'm assuming that this speech by Putin was, was you know, the audience of it was very much also the Russian people. Do you, do you have a, what is your take on the speech and its resonance? Uh, that was a very much uh, unusual speech, very long. So as, as an article, yes, but uh, to speak uh, more for more than an, one hour uh, on television, that's, that's untypical. And I think this is a new style of Putin, which I uh, noticed last year at the Valdai Summit when he answered to uh, Valdai, Valdai Forum, sorry, uh, when he answered to um, uh, questions. As, as always, he is very well prepared. But uh, this is a new style that he tries to very, very detailed explain everything he he says. That's he he, he tries to be to be uh, I don't know what to be uh, uh, understood. Uh, it doesn't work uh, each time, but 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 still. Uh, so uh, this speech I think was 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 seen by by almost everybody and was received in the population rather positive. Uh, I agree uh, that the most interesting part was this uh, clear anti-communist section. And the irony is that the idea to 
uh, recognized Donetsk and Luhansk republics came initially from the Communist Party. They were probably uh, advised to come with this notion, and then, then they they uh, they received a response from Putin. And uh, really, it was uh, it was very strong. He started with the criminal uh, policy, uh, national policy by Lenin, which created all this mess. And he ended this this part with the stupid and also criminal policy by the late communist leadership of Soviet Union, which destroyed everything. And in this regard, it's it's pretty pretty interesting. He was never uh, be seen here, unlike the West, uh, in Russia, as a big fan of. Uh, communist time and communist regime but now it's more and more and more clear that he wants to uh, to connect himself and refer himself to the pre-communist Russia to the Russian empire well I think that I don't have too much to add to the wonderful points that Fyodor and Marlene have, have, have already made I would just maybe be a little bit more abstract about it what's striking to me and I think this is the culmination of a long process it's not um, it's not uh, pioneered by any means uh, in, in Putin's speech from, 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 from the Kremlin yesterday. Uh, and this is the sense that Russia's modernization uh, not only is not going to be westernization uh, to any degree, uh, but is going to be achieved and accomplished uh, in opposition to the West for foreign policy reasons. But, you know, it's not that long ago that Dmitry Medvedev was uh, the president of Russia and was sort of in Silicon Valley and um, was... Uh, developing a very different narrative about what, what Russia's modernization uh, would be. And, and, and Putin offered something starkly uh, conservative, you could say. And that just raises the question to which I have no idea what the answer is, is how this kind of speech will speak to younger Russians. I can imagine how it resonates with older Russians. And I think that that resonance is, um, is, is, is serious, not complete, but serious. But with younger people, I simply don't know. Uh, and... Um, Perhaps that's a kind of political gamble uh, that that Putin is making with this very uncompromising, uh, uncompromising language. Uh, the anti-Western elements are not new and not all that surprising, but um, you know the sort of unique, uh, uh, the unique role for uh, for Russia within all of this, and uniquely conservative role, uh, is um, uh, is very notable. So what I think the, the in terms of the responses from the West to uh, Russia, nor the cancellation or the the suspension, maybe one should say, of Nord Stream is probably the most the hardest one. Um, and you know, just a week week and a half ago, um, uh, the Chancellor Schultz was was kind of ifing on whether he would you know take that action to suspend Nord Stream. Do you think Putin miscalculated in this regard or? Is Nord Stream not as important as we're making it? I think uh, Nord Stream is very important, of course, and this is one of uh, strategically uh, decisive projects. But uh, it would be, uh, I think, it, it, we should not overestimate uh, the role of uh, mercantilist, uh, commercial, money driven. Uh, things uh, for uh, uh, Russian and Putin's decision making. Uh, of course, it's important, uh, but uh, there are uh, things which are, so to say, seen as being bigger than uh, than just money. And I think it's one of uh, miscalculations with uh, the sanction uh, policy 
by uh, Brits, uh, for example, and, and Americans, that they assume, following uh, esteemed publications like The Economist and Financial Times, that there is a bunch of rotten kleptocrats here ruling this country. They think only about their assets. It's not the case. It's much more complicated than not 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 that uh, that easy uh but uh, uh, i think that the calculation is that at the end of the day maybe after after a while maybe after suspension but since this pipeline has been built already it's ready to 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 start and uh, there's no doubt that uh, energy market in europe and gas market in europe will significantly change in the uh, future, but this is not the immediate future. This is uh, next uh, maybe 20 years. Uh, Russian supply will be even more important than before with this uh, process of uh, uh, green um, transformation. And I think the calculation here is that after a while, after the geopolitical turmoil, uh, this project will be back. Maybe even uh, it might be play a role in the final settlement. So I think the assumption is that at the end of the day, it will work. Uh, Michael, you know, Biden made uh, lots of effort in the last couple of days or so to, to assuage, you know, comfort Americans in that the prices at the pump aren't going up. Now I'm, I'm getting electric car, so it doesn't matter to me. But what is your sense of the role of Nord Stream and its suspension by the Germans? Well, I think it had to be uh, something at this stage that Putin uh, expected uh, to happen. So, um, you know, I think Fyodor's comments are uh, are very helpful there. I think, you know, clearly the Biden administration is pleased uh, that it did happen. Uh, it solves a number of problems for the Biden administration, sort of of longstanding, including a few that it has with the Republican Party vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. Uh, but um, the likely increase in commodity prices in the next next couple of months is going to be a huge issue for the Biden administration. Of course, you have the midterm elections coming up not too far from now. Uh, you already have uh, a very serious problem with, uh, with inflation. And so it seems to me, although Biden has done some of the messaging, uh, he probably hasn't done enough or he's going to have to do a lot more because it's, it's, it's going to be a major burden. It's going to be uh, uh, not just a, a foreign policy issue. It's going to be a real domestic political issue. Uh, and, it's, it's intriguing to see how all of this intersects. It's intriguing to see how the domestic politics intersects with the foreign policy in Russia. It's, it's no less interesting in the United States. And, and Marlene, how about, what about the energy concerns in, in from, the, from the European continent? I mean, they're going to be directly impacted by any rise in commodity prices. Exactly. And I think that's part of, of Russia's calculation is that, of course, it's, I mean, the, the, the Nord Stream stopping is, is an issue on the Russian side, but it will probably be a bigger issue on the EU side. And so the Russian calculation is that probably not in a such a long future, uh, a European partner will have to go back at the table and, and use that pipeline that, as Fyodor said, is now built. So it, it will be difficult to uh, have arguments not to use it. So I think that's their kind of medium perspective. I mean, the the, the Russia is rich now in terms of its uh, uh, foreign reserves. It can really survive for a, a good long time, maybe longer than, than what European partner can do without Russian gas. And I think also because, as Führer was saying, I mean, economic matters, but if it's strategic and nation-building issues, they are kind of becoming secondary. 
And I think that's the way we have seen, as we were just discussing, Putin's speech in kind of framing Ukraine illegitimacy as a nation and as a state and its kind of belonging historically to the the, the, the Russian nation. Once the narrative or once the, the vision is shifted toward this kind of nation building issues for Russia, then economy is just becoming a very secondary uh, element into the global decision making process. Well, finally, um, I'd like to uh, end by just having each of you give some final thoughts, um, maybe say things that you didn't get a chance to mention. Uh, why don't we start with you, Marlene? Uh, <laughs> no, I think I said pretty much everything I, ha- I had in mind, so I don't have really anything to... A- any any, progno- any prognosis for the future, well, th- putting on your <laughs> soothsayer's hat? I think we are, I mean, we are in a, in a very tense situation where it can still escalate a lot. And I think, as I was saying at the beginning, the ambiguity about the territorial definition of what is recognized by Russia is, of course, a, a very dangerous step. And, and so we can only hope that the, the kind of crisis management diplomacy Michael was mentioning will be able to, to act. Otherwise, there will be probably new waves of escalation because, as we were saying, the issue is a long-term issue. So even if it kind of stop now and slow down, things will come back on the table pretty rapidly in the forthcoming months, I think. So unfortunately, it will have to be addressed one way or another. So I gave up to give uh, predictions. It's absolutely senseless. But I think one, uh, one uh, parameter of the future is more or less clear, uh, should be clear to all of us. However this crisis uh, will end, and it will end in one or another way, uh, this is the end of the whole era, this post-Cold War era, which was defined by results of the Cold War as they were interpreted uh, in 1991. Uh, it will be different after that. We don't know yet how, but uh, the internal contradictions accumulated during those 30 uh, 30 years, even if I assume that all participants, all actors, uh, try to do their best to, so to say, to act in a positive way, but we arrived to this uh, because of... uh, uh, because of internal uh, disharmony of this, 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 this model. So now we, we are facing the necessity to reshuffle that, probably not exactly according to Russian lines, but certainly uh, it will be much different than uh, the West uh, would love to continue as it was stated after the Cold War. So you see this as a defining moment in the sense of like, you know, it's a threshold of sorts between this post-Cold War era to something new that's emerging. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's correct. I see it in this way. Uh, Michael? I agree with that and would just uh, add one further thought. At the moment, what gets an enormous amount of attention is the military challenge. It makes sense. It's, it's in many respects, a military crisis at this, at this very moment. And beyond that, there is lots of attention and has been for the past couple of months to the diplomatic challenge. We've spoken about that at some length already in this conversation. What doesn't get anywhere near enough attention, and I'll you know generalize here for Russia, Europe, and the United States altogether, is the intellectual challenge of this. Uh, what are the ideas that matter now? Uh, what is Europe? What is European 
security, these are wide open questions uh, and they cannot be answered to echo what Jodha was saying a moment ago. They cannot be answered with the slogans and the rhetoric and the thinking of the 1990s uh, or of the first decade of the 21st century. We're going to need a new conceptual frame. Uh, and perhaps when we arrive at that, some of these diplomatic questions may get a little bit easier uh, easier to reckon with, but it's going to be a major intellectual adjustment uh, for all of that. That's traumatic. It's difficult. There are going to be lots of losers and probably not that many winners from uh, from all of this. But uh, I continue to believe, if you wish to end on an optimistic note, uh, that if the right intellectual efforts are made, we may be able to slowly come to find certain opportunities in this in this crisis. That was Michael Kimmage, Marlena LaRuelle, and Fyodor Lukyanov. Well, Kimmage is a history professor at the Catholic University of America. He specializes in the history of the Cold War, 20th century U.S. diplomatic and intellectual history, and in U.S.-Russia relations since 1991. From 2014 to 2016, he served on the Secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's published many books and articles, most recently, the Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, published by Basic Books. Marlena Laruel is the director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. She's published many books, most recently, Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West, published by Cornell University Press. Kianov is editor-in-chief of Russia and Global Affairs, the chairman of the Presidium on the Council of Foreign and Defense Policy, the research director at the Valdai International Discussion Club, and a research professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He is the editor of Russia in the Middle East, Viewpoints, Policies, Strategies, published by Eastview. I actually don't want to give my kind of takes or takeaways from this uh, discussion. I just kind of want to leave it where it is, considering the, the climate. What I want to talk about is kind of a more personal evaluation of experiencing what has happened since Russia invaded Wednesday night. Now, for most of my life, living and growing up in America, I've been living under the shadow of war. Not directly. I don't, you know, I don't have any fear of my house being bombed or my loved ones being killed or made refugees. But war has been there, kind of hovering, you know, from the invasion of Grenada in the 80s, the bombing of Libya, the Panama invasion, the two Gulf Wars, uh, Afghanistan. I mean, it's just been there. 9-11, war on terrorism. And what really struck me about uh, the night Putin gave his speech about invading Ukraine, carrying out his so-called special military operations, um, it made me think of how we experience war nowadays. And some, some of you might recall a, a French philosopher named Jean Baudrillard, who published a book in the early 1990s titled, The Gulf War Did Not Take Place. And it was, a, it was a, a kind of philosophical meditation on the role of media in representing the war. And I come back to this text and these ideas of Baudrillard, because for those of us who aren't in the actual theater of the war, our experience of it is mediated through media and increasingly social media. 
And that representation creates an experience in and of itself. So for example, the next morning, uh, so this would be Thursday morning, I saw on my social media feeds, friends talking about their anxiety, that they uh, couldn't sleep, that they were um, concerned and emotional uh, and these are people who aren't in the theater of the conflict. These are people who are also mostly in the United States who are viewing the war like me through representation. And, you know, looking at the information that's coming out about what's going on on the ground, we're treated to a fragmentary experience of, you know, videos here, some guy in Kharkiv filming this with his phone, uh, social media posts, rumors, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wanted to call attention to the fact that how war is experienced for the majority of us is it's the it's through this mediation, through the representation we see in a variety of digital platforms. I mean, there's almost this magic to it in a way, too, that like, I, over here in West Virginia, can see almost from a first perspective view what is going on on the ground. I can see videos of people huddled up in the metro or, you know, soldier talk, TikToks of the different soldiers, different armies. It's It's a perspective that I didn't think was possible. And so it's turning war into something like the equivalent of I have this choice every time I get on my phone of whether or not I'm going to be exposed or I don't have a choice and I just am exposed. But it's it's um, it has a very immersive quality to it in a way that, you know, in contrast to what felt like was the former experience of war, which was just reading the news and articles. Now you have there's this new level of emotion and immersion that you get. I want to be clear about this. I don't think of this in terms of propaganda because I don't think that the amount of information that is produced now, there's a, there's a level of democratization of the production of meaning representation, narrative. It's There's no way to control all of this. It, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it some kind of propaganda. And this is why I would stress over and over the fragmentary aspect of it. At the same time, it's important to realize that war is now fought increasingly so in the media sphere uh, through social media um, by regular citizens um, who are contributing to the narratives that we take. And I think they're, for the most part, they're fleeting narratives. They're narratives that emerge today, but may change, a new narrative may crop up tomorrow. Um, and, you know, I described it at one point as, as head spinning. It creates a, a sense of um, disorientation. Uh, and I just, I just find it worth thinking about how we engage you know, those of us who are, you know, have personal relations in the region, those of us who have careers that are connected to the region, those of us who just care, um, 
I think we should also be aware of how that engagement with that representation of war um, shapes how we understand a particular conflict. Um, and, and you rightly point out it has effective qualities. Like I said, it produces anxiety. It pro people, I know people who can't work. I'm one of those myself. You're sucked into this social media sphere and it's addictive as well. And I mean, the, the, the idea that everyone, I mean, you're hearing from a lot of different angles that World War III, that we're on the precipice of this World War III situation and, and, and what can you do but, but just wallow in your own fear and terror? Exactly. And, and I think that's another, another important aspect of all of this is that it both the, the flood, the doom scrolling, the production of the social media, the engagement with it on the one hand is um, uh, an expression of the powerlessness those of us have in light of this situation, but it also reproduces that powerlessness. Because what can you do when you're powerless but repost, but change your profile picture, but, you know, make the, just interject as best as you can and therefore kind of reify the cycle? I mean, I changed my profile picture to, you know, Niet Voyne. I mean, no war. But I mean, honestly, like, you know, the powers that be, they don't care. <laughs> I can't affect anything. But it's, it, it, and that's the other thing. There, there, is a, there is a justifiable desire to do something. But that act of doing something, in my view, and I, I'm, I don't accept myself from this as well, by the way. It's, this is part self-criticism and self-reflection. That act of the desire to do something is also an act of self-satisfaction. It makes me feel better. And, and I think that's the other thing to kind of think about is, who is it for? I mean, yeah, like, am I virtue signaling right now? And I want to make clear, like, it could be for, you know, you want to show Ukrainian support. That is absolutely true. At the same time, it's also true that it could be self-satisfying. <laughs> I don't mean to, these aren't, and this is my, my whole point of bringing all this up is these aren't binaries. These are, these are things that can work in tandem. Um, and, and there's no, you know, we're not, I'm not saying, I'm not looking for pure souls here because I, I think they're impossible. I think this is about a human, to me, this is about the human condition in 21st century. Well, my experience is, I'm confused. I'm confused. I like, the Russian news did not prime me for this. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I mean, I keep saying that it was just unexpected for me, but I'm getting emails from my dad talking about the historical precedent for this. And, you know, you're reading like Putin's big speech on Monday where he also talks about the historical precedent. And, and you kind of have people on one side parroting the same, you know, trying to present their perspective. And it kind of you have like the same five talking points and on the other side trying to present a perspective with the same five talking points and so i 
I appreciate this platform as a place to kind of get out of those 10 places you can be. Do you, do you feel, do you, this is the other thing I just thought of actually while you're thinking, do you feel mobilized? Can you elaborate? So again, this goes to like, I, I think back to, you know, war in the early 20th century, big war. It was, they, we were in mobilization societies. Like everyone is called by the state to the war effort. And this goes from fighting to, you know, collecting metal and during World War II to help the war effort. It was a whole gambit of things. What strikes me now is that the state, in this case, in the United States, which is completely involved in this in, you know, in, in terms of its diplomacy and stuff and the sanctions, the state asks us nothing. I mean, I remember when 9-11, George Bush, one of the first things he said was, go shopping. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And to me, I mean, th this is also interesting. The, 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 the media scape provides uh, a means of mobilization that the state no longer is asking so I was, I'm curious, because you're talking about like, you're being drawn into it, you're, you know, looking at the news, et cetera. And I was, I, I wanted you to kind of reflect on this idea, like, are you, do you feel like you're being mobilized? <laughs> Maybe I'm a part of this new, well, so you started by talking about that war has kind of underscored your life. And I actually feel like in my life, I have a different experience. I feel like I've never really had to address war. I mean, the United States was always involved in some kind of military operation somewhere, but it never felt like legitimate war, obviously, because I didn't see anything. And we didn't talk about it. Um, it was, yeah. And also, even when people mentioned that we had, there were people in Afghanistan one of the things that ran through my head, and I think that this is a maybe my generation like is on the same page with this, like, oh, we just exist everywhere. Like there's this nihilistic attitude that like, oh, what's happening here just happens everywhere. Like it's all corrupt. It's all messed up. Like there's no hope. And so like in terms of feeling mobilized, to be honest, no, I like I feel really disconnected from like I almost don't trust anything that there's this um feeling like especially now this week that i have been so shaken up and all of my expectations have been undermined and just wrong that i just i've it makes me it pushes me even further away from understanding what's going on and since i don't have any clear i don't believe any narrative it makes me like not unable to to act to even feel a desire to act i like i feel i'm very far away that's how i feel and like i don't think that the media is really helping i mean from the us side of things from the russian side of things from the al jazeera from the indian news side i mean nowhere is really showing me something that I can get on board with. I mean, just like when you're so inundated with information, 
you believe nothing. Yeah, no, and, and I think I think as you said, you, you feel confused because you know I I've been spending a lot of time on Telegram, uh, which is a really great place for information about what's you know unfolding you know in Russia in the region in general. Um, at, but at the same time, I mean, it's the same thing you know you're feeling like you it you can't it's too much to process because there's no like you can't take a breath um and and i do wonder like people who you know who aren't in the theater of conflict right who are you know having to gather all everything they have and can carry and their loved ones and and get the hell out and run away right or go into the metro bomb shelters that i've seen pictures of in kharkiv and in kiev and all of these places <clears throat> but like you know somebody in the middle of russia who may not have any personal connections like how i i, I can't help and and their view of the war is the same as ours in fact the view of U ukrainians who are in the theater of conflict is also mediated through media as well so which is clear because the conversations that everyone's having like from the russia side from the u.s side from the ukraine side the there seems to be very little crossover in what 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 the what the conversation is is about here like from the russia side everyone's honing in on nato and like uh kind of this geopolitical positioning strategy big 3D chess thing. Uh, from the U.S. side, obviously, it feels like very principled, very moralistic. From the Ukraine side, it's like, help me. <laughs> so I mean, but the three the three perspectives are not really like where's the where's the crossover here? Yeah. I mean, to through which to understand this conflict. I mean, I'm, this is going on with that. I don't understand what's going on completely. I can't fully conceptualize it. And because I can't conceptualize it, it's like I don't believe it almost. Or like I, I can't. I'm just like withholding all belief, suspending all belief. To Bolgerard's point, the Gulf War did not take place. I think this is this is kind of my the thing that's running through my head to try to you know to try to kind of step back and and kind of evaluate things you know um, and not really evaluate them in a sense of like the right and wrong the horror all of this stuff I mean we could go on and on about that but well well thank you thank you Margaret for your comments I mean I I wanted to kind of have a more personal experience type discussion instead of weighing in on what Michael Fyodor and Marlena were talking about. So I appreciate you, you sharing this with the listeners. Your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Margaret Budik. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Again, if you like this podcast, and as Margaret said, if you care, uh, please share it on social media and tell your friends and family about it. Or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org and let us know what you think. We'd like to incorporate more listeners. If you have a question, we maybe answer it on the podcast. Also, we'd really love for listeners to send audio testimonies 
um, or questions that we can play on the podcast. And recording something really short is easy. You could do it on your smartphone and you can email it to info at srbpodcast.org. That's info at srbpodcast.org. And as always, we love your support. This is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it requires the support of individuals and other educational institutions to keep it completely free and open without any advertisements, paywalls, any of these little, you know, business things. So please help us keep it that way. So please become a monthly patron by joining the SRB Table of Ranks at patreon.com slash blog. And until next time, bye. Silent soldiers on a silver screen Framed in fantasies and drugged in dreams Unpaid actors of the mystery The mad director knows that freedom will not make you free And what's this got to do with me? Point the